Hello, everybody. Richard Mull here. Dr. Richard Mull. I don't usually like titles. The only title I've really claimed lately is Papa. I'm a granddad. Pretty soon to be four times. So, um, but uh, yeah, really excited about today's Mullet Over podcast with special guest Nathan Reynolds, author of Snatch from the Flames. Phenomenal, incredibly well-written book. Like you are a gifted writer and communicator and um, excited to have you on the show today. Uh, there's so much to be said about Nathan's story. I believe that you, uh, one of the things I've been praying is God would reveal, would expose the kingdom of darkness and what is going on in our nation and what what has been going on under our noses that, I mean, I grew up in the Leave it to Beaver family and mainline church structure, the world that we minister into on a regular basis, which was your world, like was hard to fathom, impossible to fathom. And I find so many people struggle to accept what is is so huge. Um, and and that is the the occult world that's right under our noses, even in the religious systems, in our political systems, and all of that. And, and, um, so we minister into this kind of stuff and I can hardly ever talk about it because I'm protecting the people that we minister to their stories. Many of them carry so much shame and stuff that, that it's hard for them to, to tell their story. And almost nobody wants that as their identity. No, a human trafficker doesn't want to be known as a, a, a survivor of human trafficking. They, they want to live their life. And so to find people that are talking about what they've been through, um, is, is special. And I, and I just want to, want to commend you for that. All the stuff that you have been, I've been following you on other podcasts. Um, how it ended up in the top feed of my YouTube, I don't know. And, uh, but I, I've been glad for it. And, um, so I'm, I've been staying up on you. And then I was wondering, why did all of a sudden this, flourish of Nathan Reynolds come about. And then I heard you explain that, that while you lived in the RV, it was hard because you want to protect your kids from what you lived through. So anyways, excited to have you today. I've really, um, I was like, what would we bring to the table? What would I ask you to do that I haven't already seen you do? And some of it I've watched you do, but I, I really wanted to be strategic because I, I've dealt with other men that have been through some of what you've been through. And, Almost every one of them feels very alone and in massive amounts of shame. And I know we're going to talk about a, a number of things, but but one of the things that I thought, man, I would love to to give you an opportunity to speak to those men um, that have been through the type of stuff you've been through um, in in your childhood and. So welcome, Nathan Reynolds. I want to give a lot of time to you. Uh, you are in one of the more scholarly people that I listen to. You don't look like a scholar. Um, and uh, But man, when you speak, I am like, this guy's incredibly well-read. Um, I learn from you stuff that I people look to me like I'm an expert. And I'm like, oh, and I feel like I know this much, but it's this much more than so many other people. And, uh, and, and I'm always learning from you, um, in a number of arenas. One of the things I just want to mention, um, that I've, I've, I've been picking up on, and I would love to pick your brain is when you exposed some of the occult connection, modern occult to what was happening in the biblical times, 
Um, I want your resources. I, 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 cause I like, that's for me, a biblical foundation for stuff is so important and so huge. And seldom do I find someone who has poured themselves into that arena and, and brings it into this world. Um, and, and, and so I, I, I'm here excited to listen and I'm excited for our people to, to encounter you. We did have you here at our church one time and of all of our services that we posted, it is the one that consistently we, we still have people going, I, I love this one. And that was three, four years ago. I don't even know now, but, um, more than any of mine. So I just acknowledge that. Uh, just um, looking forward to what you have to share with us today. Thank Nathan you, Reynolds. For, thanks for having me on. You know, I, uh, you were the first church to invite me to speak since I started talking about these topics. People used to like to invite me to talk uh, until I talked about this stuff, you know, and then it got a lot quieter out there yeah. for certain. But shame and fear mm. and guilt. I say are the three main methods of control that allows a conspiracy of silence to continue to propagate in our culture mm. and systemically destroy our hope. And that allows the systemic exploitation of children predominantly at the, the full force of what this evil agenda, this death cult is all obsessed with is an absolute commitment to secrecy. And that is diametrically opposed mm -hmm. to a kingdom of truth. And that is the, the that is why this great brotherhood of the snake is perpetually at war with the people that guard the commands and love the, the path of truth because they are they hate it. They hate it. It is absolutely the inverse of everything they've built their house upon. And my family built their house upon the backs of children. And that was literally the way that they got in to the power. It was the, the gatekeepers for my family was whether or not you were willing to exploit your own children. Now, you didn't have to do it directly. It could be, there seemed to be a, a, a insulative barrier between direct family, as in like my mother and father being perpetrators of my abuse. I didn't grow up in a family where my mom and my dad were actively, physically, mentally, emotionally, or sexually abusing me in that same way. You know, there's obviously mental manipulations in various forms. However, my family directly didn't do the abusing of me. That was always handed off through like almost like guardianship. And that's that's the core tenet of it that allows access through um, power of a trust fund or power through a phone book, a directory where favors are called in. So my family sold me over to my grandfather my, on my mom's side. And he lives in a city called Lake Havasu City, Arizona. And down in that city, which was founded at its origins, from its beginning, it was designed and built to be a, a literal pleasure city for pedophiles. And the guy who, who built it, his name is Robert P. McCulloch, even in his declarative statements that have since been kind of scrubbed off, that he was using it for MK projects. So that's, that's a form of one of the tenets of mind control that was utilized, which was a guy that was brought in, a guy named C.V. Wood, who is the designer and architect of Disneyland. He was the one who built this mind control little world down there in Disneyland came from Sanford Research Institute, which has been well-renowned for their mind control experimentations and human behavior modification experiments back from the 1950s. So that is was that like- Sanford, the, Florida? This is not Sanford, is Florida. I'm talking about Sanford Research down in, um, okay, in California, Southern California. 
Okay, gotcha. So they they are since separate from Stanford University, but at the time they were a lot more intermingled. But this is where a lot of the military industrial complex had its human experimentation programs. Universities and the military work very intimately when it comes to human experiments because you can still do human experimentation programs through schools and in particularity through colleges and through a lot of their psychology departments. Like even where I went to school at the University of Colorado at Boulder, there was mandatory human experiments that we had to go through. We were required to do certain amount of hours in the experiment labs in the basement, but for us to even be participants in the psychology program. So this allows them a fresh, uh, fresh meat um, uh, in no uncertain terms. Now, not everybody's going to go through something that's, you know, overtly creepy or bizarre, hypnotic. It's, it's not always like that. However, this is, this is where a lot of those, those hands that are compromised, because really, ultimately, at the end of the day, these people that raise me, these people that, that cover up these types of crimes, they are a culture of psychopaths. Psychopathy is the, the core tenet of this, and that, that comes from a systemic, overwhelming abuse and traumatization at, a, at an early age that teaches you can never get out. And so by the time you kind of grow out of it, you, you want power. You want a way to control and manipulate the, 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 the mechanisms that were controlling you in the past. And so this is what breeds that, that form of psychopathy and you now have a society that that raises people up and puts them in positions of power because they are all about mutually assured destruction they don't mind having blackmail on each other they understand compromises the currency of the kingdom of darkness and if you want to go along we all get along here by keeping each other's secrets so they feel comfortable to be perverse at the end of the day to be so sexual deviants in every arena of their lives because they have seared their consciences so completely and my family in particularity my grandfather had a to shattering the minds of children. And he did it a lot through drowning and he did it through electrocution and he did it through um, molestation and rape, incest. And that's that was his tactics and he got a reputation for that in the Knights of Columbus and with the Jesuits from the, the great whore of Babylon, the Roman Catholic Church that, that was systemically abusing children for a long time and still continues to do so every single day of the week. That is their main product that they procure is shattered minds and compromised individuals. And so... Currents, that currency that my family used, they used my body during those early years for a lot of sexual exploitation, for a lot of uh, compromising of it's other It's so indescribable, typically, because yeah. when, when we're ministering into people and they begin to share this kind of stuff, it is stuff that would make it hard for people to sleep at night if they heard what the kind of stuff. I love the way you express so much without – like. I when I wrote, I wrote one book and I said how do you write an X-rated horror movie for PG audience and and yeah. and you do that really well. You know it's you, so there's there are counselors, friends, people that we need in our lives who we can share a lot more graphic details with. And you know what? There is yep. a, a, one. I'll just say this. Most of them can't even handle that. Part Most of the counselors, process. trauma therapists, yeah. they, they genuinely cannot even handle it themselves because the secondary trauma of having to sit with somebody described in such impossible, vivid details, excruciating, soul-splitting agony and mind games. Like, like, like when little children are manipulated to believe that, that abuse between family members is normal – this this locks you up in a stage of development that that is so hard to ever break free from that that teaches you a form of learned helplessness and um and perversion 
as perversion as normalcy, as perversion as pleasure. And it, it really corrupts, it systemically corrupts your identity. And that's the core tenet of what our adversary, this great red dragon, seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And the main thing he is really about stealing is your identity. And that's just a universal reality. It's not just because in my life, in my circumstances, people weaponize their willingness to, com to comply with that agenda. Every one of us has been subjected to the very same societal and psychological destruction of our identities and our purposes and our callings. And that came through the systemic indoctrination we were forced to go through. Most of us went through 15,000 hours of compulsory education. Brainwashing is what they call it in other countries. When we look at their propaganda, we would say they're brainwashing their people to believe a certain way. Well, we are subjected to the very same thing. We send our children voluntarily to liars to teach them lies, to memorize lies, to then live in a society that you don't get along with unless Come you on. go ahead and lie and cover up these things. And it's a very corrupt system. And so even trying to trying to break out of it was was so perpetually reinforced that that if I tried to resist, if I tried to go out and tell somebody else, people got hurt. People got people got silenced and I got relocated over and over again. And so it, it, it's a form of trauma bonding where you try to bond with somebody outside of the family. Uh, the family, what I'm referring to is like a the old religion people side of it. There's a scientific government-based side of it that I would call more like the network. But the family that I refer to is a, is a much more old religion. These people that inherently believe they are bloodline carriers of the seed of the serpent, that they are sons of the dragon, and therefore they have a right, a, a legal, spiritual right to rule over people. These these cattle, like uh, this subspecies of man. This is literally the word human means a subspecies of man. Mankind, persons, is a very different thing entirely. And so we have... It has taken me a long time, and it really did, took until I was married to a, an outsider, this woman that, that, I, that I joined in covenant with who didn't grow up in this world, didn't come out of this lifestyle. Her and I sitting down, turning off the TV and talking to each other, that friend thing, that relational thing, where she accepted me. And the more I let out, a little bit more at a time, a little bit more, the more I found out she didn't run away, and she wasn't scared of me. Because at the end of the day, when people, when you're sharing and divulging these secrets to these, these, this inutterable moments of brokenness and shame, you at the, as you're sharing it, you're also, you are the most hyper-vigilant observer of the other person's reactions. And you are scrutinizing them at a level that they are almost never looked at. And you're evaluating and testing whether or not they're judging you and condemning you and, and fearful of you. Then you're, you're gauging your response to whether or not you're going to share anything else based off that a lot of times. And it takes a long time to undo that culture of silence. It takes a long time of deliberate, intentional, consistent love, like a, a, a loving environment. This is why I literally believe there's no greater friend than the Holy Spirit, than the set-apart spirit that can comfort you and counsel you in a way that no man can. You know, and I've seen him, I've seen that spirit work through men, work through women, work through his creation to minister to me and to minister to other victims and survivors. However, having a real life person who has that power flowing through them is incredible at what it can accomplish in restoring the, repairing the breach, that breach in our identity, that shattering of our minds, that dissociative stance that we took in order to survive and to try to knit back together the pieces of a broken soul requires a deliberate great work, the work of the great physician. And that, that is the only one I found that can really do that, truly do that was the Messiah, was Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. Amen. He's the only one I found who can, Amen. who has suffered. I'm so thankful he came Amen. to suffer. 
I'm so thankful he came to suffer One of the, because he could have reigned and conquered, I have, but he's because he suffered, uh, he gave us peace. Yeah. I have found in all the messianic passages, the, the main messianic passages, Isaiah 53, mm-hmm. Isaiah 58, um, the, the various ones that it talks about this kind of ministry, healing the broken heart, knitting the pieces of a broken, shattered heart back together. And I'm like, I had never seen it before. Um, but, but the Lord showed me that the other thing that, that what you're saying that is profound is, um, that, and I've watched this in you, the people that go the furthest in their healing, um, God uses us. I know that he does, but the ones that latch on and try to draw everything from us, I'm like, I'm not Jesus. I can't be there 24 seven. We can provide a level of community and care, but when, when you can switch that to I'm in the word, I am, I am depending on the Holy spirit. And then you've got community that's, that accelerates the healing process. And, and, um, I see that in you, such a hunger for God's word and going after the Lord. Well, that's at the end of the day, that's where my identity is found. That's where every one of you, man, woman, and child that's listening today is your identity is found there. And that's, that can seem very churchy to some of you. And that can seem like somebody just trying to hook you into a religion. I'm not interested in a religion. I'm interested in the restoration of all people. And that is found through the restoration of the truth. If you grew up in a society and a culture that lied to you from the day, the first day they ever had a chance to teach you something and they they conspired against you to lie about what you were here for why why you were born i mean you're fundamentally you have a different you have a different understanding of the world than what is truth and you have to go back to what is the truth what is the truth and it says literally a hunger for the truth is like the the greatest thing that we can have a hunger for the word and a hunger for the truth because if we're willing for willing to seek that that hunger to have to to be like we need that famine for the word. Like we need a hunger for the word. We need people that are starving for it. And you know what? Like I, I got a lot of inspiration, honestly, from the underground church movements of other countries. I, I had to read, I had to read what it was like for other people to suffer for the sake of the truth, because I saw in my culture and in my society, in this very insulated form of Western Christianity that I was raised within, I saw that there was a very passive relationship to war. There was a very indifferent ideology from when I read the book. First book I ever started reading in my life. I wanted to read Samuel. I wanted to read about David. I wanted to read about mighty men of valor, Gibberim in the scriptures. I wanted to know about what made a soldier a soldier in Yahuwah's kingdom, in Yah's kingdom. Like, What does God care about when he says this is a man? Because I saw a version of masculinity in the occult, in the kingdom of darkness, people that embraced Anger, rage, wrath, violence, power. I saw power there. But when I would go into churches, I would see impotence. I would see this naked, mutilated, starving, skeletonized version of Jesus defeated. I would see this, this idol of, the, of this passion. I would see this, this man on a stage who was purporting to read from the most powerful book on the face of the earth as if it was something boring. And it would disgust me because I could walk into that room with my abuser sitting next to me and they had no discernment enough to see the demon or the wolf in their midst. And it just, it continued to kind of work on my mind doubt. And, and I think this is what has happened is in our society, we, we look at people that should be raising the dead 
casting out demons. Come on. Putting the come on. We're, we're looking for them. And when we don't see them in the churches, people get disillusioned that that means the God that they're talking about doesn't have that power, that he doesn't pour out and dispense that in mighty signs and wonders to his people. That, you know what? Some of you need to be saved with fear, like fear. Others of you, we need to have compassion on because you're doubting. You know what? That's There's ways that we need to wage this war deliberately. But you know what? I needed to see bold men. I needed to see men be men. I needed to see fathers to be protectors and not perverters of justice. And it really did mm. not happen in my life growing up. It did not happen in the confines of a church. Mm. It happened when I walked out of the, the structured building they called the church, and I began to go seek it. I began to go seek him. And you know what? At the end of the day, I was seeking with all my heart the truth. And if, I, if you set that in your heart, you will assuredly find it. And it's found in your word. Like I did in an entire audio recording of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation because I started probing people. I'm always perpetually observing mankind. I want to find out why they are the way they are because I was more so raised by animals. Like animals gave me the mindset and the perspective of people. And I'm trying all the time to understand what makes them the way they are. And when I ask believers, people who purport to be a follower of the Messiah, a Christian, have they read their Bible from Genesis to Revelation? Over 80% have said no. Almost every time they say no. Now, there's definitely some who have, and generally those that have have read it more than once because that hunger got pricked inside them. The Bible does not begin in the book of John. And I can't even tell you how many times I would go to apologetics <laughs> classes, like master classes, and they would say, you start with John when you do apologetics in street ministry. And I wanted to throw a book through their skull because they are absolutely ignorant of understanding <laughs> that your identity is found in Genesis. Your identity is found in the mm. name of our creator's purpose and call, like the first words he ever gave to man, first commission, first mission statement, be an Obed and be a Shemarai. Like literally he said, Shamar and Obed, Obadiah. We get this word, Obadiah, obey, be an obedient, worshipful servant, be a man who works and labors and passionately gives himself to life and to his calling. It doesn't mean till, T-I-L-L. That's how it's translated. It's garbage. It is a most powerful, important mission that you ever had, which is to work hard and to be a guardian. That's literally the shamar. Shamar is the word we get shamari from, king's guardian. He put him there to work hard, provide, and protect. That was it. Do that job, Adam. That's what you were made to do. And every man, that's what you were made to do on this earth. And you know what? By the sweat of our face, he gave us a weapon to fight against this curse. And if we do that, we can contend against this great dragon. But when we avoid it, like Adam did, where he abdicated his responsibility and sat back when the serpent beguiled his wife, when he sat idly by and he abstained from the combat, when he abstained from weighing into the battle, the world was destroyed. And you know what? This is what all it takes for all of this to go on is for bold men to sit back and become cowards. That's it. If we would become courageous, if we would weigh into the fray, look for our identity from the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, we can find a completely different understanding than what we were raised with, than what maybe people have purported to do. And it can develop in us the restoration of our calling. When I first started doing deliverance, I came out of a Baptist mainline evangelical, large evangelical church. and But I saw what Jesus took 12 teenagers to do, and it was cast out evil spirits, heal the sick, preach the kingdom of God, which is like the foundation of the first book that I wrote. And um, But it was, I, I was like, Lord, would you disciple me? Would you teach me those things? 
and people, it was like God answered that prayer by sending me demon possessed people. And I was like, not like this, God. I want to like read it in a book. And uh, people would start manifesting demons and I would have to rely on the Lord. But it was weird because I, I had a theology of who I am in Christ. But when the, when the push came to shove, the enemy's lies were stronger. Like God can't use you because you've got sin in your life because it was shame, guilt. The the accuser would come in and I would have to remind myself of my identity every single time. I, there was – at the early days, I, had, I didn't have a book to look to. I didn't have a person to look to. But people would come to me and I would say, let me start with worship because I'd feel God's presence when I'd worship. So I'd just bring my guitar. I'd sing a little bit. Then I had a series of scriptures. By the time I was done quoting those passages – I had reminded myself of who I am, explained to them who I am, and I knew that it was affecting the demonic kingdom too because it was like the demons are going, shoot, this guy knows who he, who he is. And when I would switch gears, now let's do ministry, bam, the power of God would show up. But the enemy would attack my identity every time right away. And and you know, I walk out the door and he's reminding me of areas in my life that I still didn't have together and failures and shortcomings. And it would just, it would, it, that's what I would feel spiritually impotent. And I'd have to get clothed all over again. Every time someone wanted help over time, I was going, I know who I am. I know the authority. I know, uh, I, you know like those scriptures are now part of my DNA, you know, but for a long time, it was that, I had no idea where that belief system came from. I don't remember it being taught from a pulpit, but but the belief system that I had to strive to be good enough before God could really use me in power. What a powerful testimony. It's only the grace of here. God. It's only the blood of Jesus. Yeah. Indeed. So um, I, one of the things I'm excited with you is I believe God is using you in this arena in particular as a voice. And um, and, and I, I've – so many men that have come out of and come through what you have come through, the window begins to open up and they slam the door and disappear and and don't resurface. And then they'll resurface again and and just begin to uncover some of that darkness. Now, women we deal with on a consistent basis, but the men, so often it is, it's a, it, and, I, and I, I survey, I'm, I'm like the women that have been through the programs and been trained and the part of the occult and everything like that. They're like, I, I, I'll ask, were there 90% women and 1%, 99% women and 1% men? And they're like, no, it was it was pretty evenly split, you know, mm. what, what I witnessed. And I'm like, where are the men? Yeah. What would you say to that? Where are the men? That is the right question. You know, I did my first show ever last night. I did like a four hour show and there was a male survivor on there with me. And that is one of the, that is the first time I've ever had an opportunity. I, I have talked to quite a few male survivors in that regard. I'm not yeah. going to say I haven't over the years. But they are eight to nine to one, you know, of who actually will reach out to me and who will try to connect with me or try to talk with me in that regard. But the, the male sexual abuse is so 
stigmatized. Yeah. The, the, the layer of shame that comes on men, boys, during sodomy is excruciating on a very different yeah. scale. And I can't say that. All I know is my own perspective yeah. on it. I can't, I can't compare my yeah. abuse to that. That's that the sense that I get. However, however, yeah. the, the culture with which a woman can talk about being abused, sexually abused, versus the one that the supportive culture versus the supportive culture for male sexual abuse are very different. We have had much more resources, time, energy, labor devoted to helping women who have been sexually abused. <sighs> We do not have mm-hmm. the same support structure, nor do we have the societal norm of understanding men with sexual deviance like to rape little boys. That is universally reality and has been since the days of Cain. This, this culture, transmi- it, it happens over in, I went to Afghanistan. They like to have the mullahs who like to have their little boys because they think it's not sexual adultery if they have sex with a little boy under the age of nine years old. So this was like their cultural norm as well. In the Catholic Church, it was the same thing with the altar boys, that they like to have sex with little boys, and they like to be able to have that as a way of an outlet because, you know, they took a vow of celibacy. And as a form of sexual, uh, you know, my purity, I don't ever indulge with women. You know, this this culture has infiltrated so systemically into our society that there's abuse victims of it by the millions, by the tens of millions. But they don't know that they can come out and talk about it because they think they're going to be ridiculed, mocked. And you know what? The truth is you will. You absolutely will be. And, you know, the main people that do it are those that are 100 percent. Let me just put it really clear. The one weapon they really have when you come out and try to contend by sharing your testimony, which is what it is, which is the most dangerous weapon you have in your arsenal, is the blood of the land, the words of your testimony, and not fearing your life when faced with death. Not loving your life when you're faced with death. Those are your three most powerful weapons Mm. in your arsenal. So, Mm. like, you find that in Revelation. Mm. So, if you start in Genesis, you get to Revelation, you find out the most powerful weapons you got. But if you don't start with your identity and you don't start with your job, your purpose, and 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 any of that, you're never going to find out how to use your weapon. Just like in the military, when I went to the United States Basic combat training at Fort Knox, Kentucky, they don't give you an M16A2 rifle or an M4, whatever version of it you get nowadays. You don't get that until you have already been through much training, much hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of trauma-based mind control training. The military is absolutely training civilians to become murderers. It's a very deliberate, How scientific trauma-based. I was a junior in high school. I was 17 How... years old. Junior in high school. School. And that was part of the Jason project no, the jason project started earlier in my life so there's there's a few different things so um jason for those of you that that are unfamiliar with these terms that richard just threw out there the jason group is a consulting scientific it's a secretive scientific consulting group that works to since the 1950s and 60s to advise the military predominantly now it's now it's very to other people they're they're professorial scholars. They're scholars of scholars who are not connected to the military industrial complex. That was their by design so that they can consult on things like how do we test our nuclear weapons? How do we communicate with nuclear submarines? How do we do all kinds of stuff that, you know, is spycraft stuff? Um, well, they had a lot of children and those children, they realized, you know what, they started having uh, relations with each other so that they could breed geniuses, breed savants. And what happened is they started brainwashing and, and traumatizing and programming the children of these Jason group, this Jason group. And so it created a subclass called the junior Jasons. Well, the junior Jasons were literally um, 
I mean, mind-controlled slaves that were designed for academia predominantly. And they, they were trying to, to cultivate a class of very, very smart and intelligent children. Well, in 1989, a man by the name of Robert Ballard started something called the Jason Projects. And he was a naval intelligence officer, high-ranking naval intelligence officer, who wanted to have access to a huge swath of children. And they wanted to start what's called a finder's program in order to be able to recruit and, and evaluate talents. There was a, a, a project called Project Talent that was started back during the uh, beginning of the Sputnik Cold War space race time frame and where they invested a billion dollars into trying to raise up um, intelligence within our youth. They started targeting children through these gifted and talented programs. And, and that National Defense Authorization Act began to, to cultivate a culture where children during the schooling system got a separate form of schooling from individuals who were, were trained and proficient as, as handlers, people that could, could take them in at an early age, bond with them, and then, and then program them to serve the agenda of what I would call that's more the network side of it. This is not the religious side of it in that regard. These are not people that are, that are wearing robes and engaging in ritual abuse or that kind of style of it. They have their own form of doing things, which is much more technological-based. A lot of this comes out of what the Ubermans program was looking into, what, what, what Dr. Green, as he's referred to, and Mangala, what they were looking for in this undetectable mind-controlled slaves. They wanted a form of, of weaponized hypnotism. And so these are a lot more of the methods that were deployed. And to this day, you can go to their website. They have had, they, back even in 2008, they had 10 million children that had gone through that program. Today, every single year, the Jason Projects cranks through 10 million more children. And this is a way that they have major corporate sponsorships of the, the, some of the most powerful and influential companies on the world. That's where they go to get their children. That's where they go to find the best of the best who will be able to keep the secrets, who will be able to do their bidding and their agenda and stuff like that. So the Jason projects that I was put through was was brought in by a guy named Edward Teller, who was like the first contact I ever had within that group, who is one of the fathers of the hydrogen bomb. And he had an absolute commitment to what's called total war. He believed that we needed to weaponize ever. We needed to absolutely weaponize every resource that we had in our country in order to be able to contend against mutually assured destruction. And he, th that was the form of weaponizing children. And so there was a big dispute in, with the Jasons um, back at, at, a, at one point in their life about whether or not they're going to bring in some of these people because membership for the Jason group was always something that was voted on by everyone collectively. Well, so they, there started being these fractures and schisms over who was going to be allowed into this group and whether children were going to be allowed into this. And this this became a big split over overall. And so a lot of these Jasons started their own little pet, they call them pet projects. And that's what I was raised up in was one of these pet projects by um, my military handler who was adapting a form of, of raising up a child uh, spy. And uh, predominantly the main tenet of that was my need for revenge. When you can find somebody who's absolutely willing to seek revenge, this is really good candidate for the assassination training programs and espionage and subterfuge and infiltration uh, protocol. So that's what I got put into at that time. So that, but that started way younger in my life. That didn't, me going into the army was, was much later on. I've been doing consult, consulting work with the United States Air Force for many, for years uh, before that point in my life. Wow. Can I ask a question? Um, one of the uh, things that I've seen again and again, because I, I feel like a lot of times I'm like with my eyes blindfolded trying to describe an elephant, you know, or trying to figure out what I'm touching because like, so you, you explain things from the inside. A lot of my experiences from the outside. So I've ministered to a fair number of people that were trained assassins or it, uh, there's a few that it appears to be, we haven't uncovered to that depth yet, but the ones that were, 
um, some of them had a religious component to it where they felt like they were serving in David's army. They thought that they were doing good. They were eliminating human trafficking, fighting pedophiles, things of that nature. And they, but at the same time, some of the ones that I've dealt with were also involved in the occult. So there was a religious, uh Oh, it looks like I lost you. I can hear you. We're back. Okay. It it started a countdown again. So we must've lost a couple seconds. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly what my question was, but um, that I, what, what, what I, have seen in them is from pretty early on they are thrown into situations where they have to fight their way out and it doesn't make sense to them um but that is part of their programming um and i and i've seen that again and again and again is that at all what you experienced as well yeah the, i mean the did my question make foundation, sense the, the foundation of it is absolutely trapped you are trapped completely and it's not some kind of like idea that puts you in a cage to put you in a cage and leave you there for a long time you have no idea what cramps in your body can do to to wear you down just physically being cramped nothing else no other bad big scary horrible thing happening to you just being physically cooped up somewhere like a dog that that caged feeling you leave somebody there long enough, you're going to find out whether they just completely give in from that point forward, whether they give in and uh, they, they split and shatter their mind, whether they try to fight back. Because sooner or later, one of those two things is going to happen. You're going to fight, you're going to, f- you're going to freeze, or you're going to flight, and there's no way to get out. So then how do, you, how do you get out of an inescapable room? How do you get out of that lockbox? Well, you start to do all kinds of things. You start to do anything you can possibly imagine, anything you can imagine. Talk, scream, cry, plead, poop, piss yourself, whatever you got to do. You start tearing your fingernails out. You start ripping your hair out. You start trying to chew through the metal. You'll try anything to try to get your way out of that out of that situation. Like one of the ways that they would do that is they would put us in a public bathroom and lock the door. Lock the door, turn off the water, okay? But this was in Lake Havasu City, Arizona. It's 125 degrees there. It's one of the hottest places on the face of the earth. You would die from heat stroke if you don't figure out a way out of there. If you can't get out of there physically, you better find a way to crawl down in the pit toilet and sit down and climb down and swim in the feces and the urine and everyone's waste and excrement to cool yourself off enough to live. Like you have to debase yourself. This tends to be the like the guided direction of like that programming is that you have to you have to destroy any internal resistance to doing disgusting things in order to get out. And so like early on when you when if not you they literally and and they set this up by by taking you there and dragging a dead child out of it. Like so you know that that's that's the end game. They're not going to come and get you. Like they're not going to come and get you until you pass some horrible perverse psychological test. And that that feeling of trapped and despair and hopelessness has to shift at some point if your will to survive is high enough, if you're if you're willing to overcome and think outside of the box in a sense and find a way to get out, generally the door is through depravity. And that's the, what they start to do is they start to only open the door to all of those things that you naturally have a resistance to do. Like in, innate in us is not a desire to, to, to shove your thumb through somebody's eyeball to get to their brain and kill them. However, Hand-to-hand-wise, it's the fastest, most efficient way to actually kill another person 
when you're in a in a in a wrestling match. However, resistance wise, that is what people resist doing. That you can train a martial artist, and at the end of the day, they're almost never going to do that. They will try any other thing to do it. However, you can debase somebody enough all the way down to this horrible, disgusting level, this inhuman level. And then from there, they're like, okay, now we're going to rebuild you and give you the opportunity because now that you're killing for us, now that you're willing to fight to the death, literally to tear the throat out of other people, children, if you're willing to go to that level, okay, now we'll go ahead and build you up again. And it's this, this is a form of such powerful manipulation that it's really hard to ever get out of it because you now all the shame locks you up. I always say shame is a binder. Shame is these cords that, that are used to constrict people. This is that spirit of Python that, that ensnares people and keeps them from ever being free. And it's that shame that locks you up. And once you've got that locked in and secure, you have to give them a new purpose. And that's where I think so often, Richard, that, that occult element of being a chosen one is then released where that you have a purpose mm-hmm. and now you are you are chosen special. vessel you are you are special you are special you are talented you are so gifted whereas every other area of your life you are belittled you are you are made fun of you're mocked you're 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 an embarrassment but in this one area you are praised and so it does it becomes it becomes an identity that the only time I can ever have that confidence built up in me is by going into that side of my mind, going into the darkness, going into the depths of it. When when you get into that kind of mind control, you're really dealing with this is why that, that chosen one, Russ Dizdar's book, The Black Awakening, is one of the best ones that actually goes through how chosen ones, yep. super soldiers, for another lack of a better word, how, how they're made, how they're formulated. Where do these occult sciences come from? What is the origin story to, to all of this? And uh, thank you. Where this book, Black Awakening, you can find this for PDF. If not, you can always email me at snatchfromtheflames at protonmail.com. But this book, for those of you that are counselors, those of you that are interested in it, this is one of the best kind of historical uh, evaluations of where a lot of this came from. It's also an explicit, it's very explicit in the details of what it's like being someone more like where Richard is seated, who is just a minister, who is just like going to churches and trying to help, in a sense, got caught up in a whole other level of this entire experiences. And uh, Russ Dizzer is no longer with us, but he has thousands and thousands of hours of free training materials on shatterthedarkness.net. One of the most important ones is a cult crimes investigation. He's got another one that's called uh, Theocentric Counseling and Freedom Encounters and uh, and dealing with chosen ones. That's, that's what he refers to them as. How to deal and minister to somebody who's a chosen one, because you're going to be dealing with somebody who's got... We're, who has an intellect lost. that generally will we will 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 walk circles around you, and it's really hard to get into a, a conversational debate with somebody who's generally got a a really solid, firm understanding of their identity from a very perverse perspective. It takes it takes a lot of deliberate trust building before you can even speak into that side of that person because they have experienced a, a form of survival which required them to do horrible things absolutely horrible things but things that they're emotionally have no feeling about there is there is a seared conscience there and so so trying to develop and cultivate recultivate empathy in somebody that had to cut it off so deeply in order to survive is takes absolute deliberate intentional contribution of your time your love and a lot of strategic prayer asking the father to please reveal Whatever's hidden there, whatever door, legal door that the enemy has to have an oppressive hold on them or a spirit of deceit, a spirit of lying, or to bind those gatekeepers that are watching over this person and keeping them from ever finding out the truth about their calling or giving them a new job, you know? Yeah. 
One amazing story, someone who was trained like you had come in and how they found, they said they Googled their symptoms and found us with their first search and they've given me permission to share this. And, um, and which is like, it's only by the spirit of God. There's no way you're going to find us easily. Well, I put that we deal with SRA on our website for one week. And I said, take it down because we were so inundated that we couldn't respond. And so I said, let's take it down and let God bring the people that need to find us. So this person finds us. And I did not find out until like two years later, this story but she was like, I don't trust anybody my whole life. Like, that's a sign of weakness. It, it, it is a vulnerability you don't trust. But she had made a decision to trust God and, um, and, and, and was like, God, I need to know if this person is legit because nobody in my world has ever been legit. I need to know if they can help me. And so she said, what I need is for your shalom to come and fill that room and I will know that it's you. So she tells me this two years later. So she comes in, sits down. I start to pray and I'm like, this is different, but all I can see is the word shalom. And like, yeah, giant letters, shalom. And the the shalom of God is here. And I'm waiting like, okay, God, there's got to be more. Like, come on, you speak to me. And he's like, nope. Just shalom. And I'm like, all right, well, you ready? And she's like, I'm ready. And it, she didn't say anything to me then. It was two years later. She goes, let me tell you. <laughs> and I'm like, I was in tears when she told me because she was like, I, I knew I could trust you from that moment. And I was like, thank you, God. Um, you know, because it cut through what you were describing. Like, how long, how am I going to know I can trust this person? And um, so, Yeah. Absolutely. God is amazing. Even last night on that show, the show I was doing last night, the guy said that she, the, the host asked whether, uh, what are areas therapists have failed and what are ways they can improve on it? You know, and he's one of his advice. He's been out there for a lot longer trying to wage this war since like 2008. And, uh, he said, you know, if I'm going to go sit down with a counselor, like asking them just at the front hand, you know, do you deal with sexual trauma? Do you deal with combat trauma? Do you deal like screening them a little bit just to be transparent? Cause there's some super sweet old ladies out there who are wonderful and incredibly gifted as ministers in that <laughs> regard. But then, but you, you also want to know, am I going to waste a lot of money and time trying to, to, to get to a place where we've got a feeling out for a couple sessions. And then it might take six months before you're realistically built up enough trust to start to actually open up and start divulging really what's going on and what you need help with. And at that point, when you really let that out and somebody then has that fear or has that rejection of you, it's a huge, incredible waste of time, resources, and it generally leads to some people, people being traumatized from it. And so it, it keeps a lot of counselors uh, away from being able to do that. But I, I absolutely agree with you that I, I had no greater counselor than the Holy Spirit to be able to help give confirmation oh gosh, in yeah. super powerful and profound and precise ways in order to help build a bridge of trust for both the people. I've been telling people lately, it's my superpower. I'm like, I'm going to give you my superpower. And I'm like, because I hear 20-somethings always talking about, what's your superpower? And I'm like, it is putting all my knowledge, all my experience aside and saying, Lord, speak to me. And whatever he says, that's what I do. Because when he speaks, it does. It it like, it breaks the yoke. It, it, it busts through 
months and months of earning trust when the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. speaks something like like that, and and it's it's every the greatest stuff I've witnessed in ministry, I can only attribute to God. You know, um, I have to be attuned to Him, but half the time. I'm going, God, this sounds crazy, but I'm going to do what you're telling me. One of them recently was, there was a word that came to my mind. And I'm like, I'm not, I, that word has never crossed my mouth, I don't think. I've never said it. I know what the word is, but I am not saying it. I'm ministering to this woman. And I'm like, I'm having this argument with God. I mean, it happens in a short amount of time, but it's, an, it's a drawn out argument. And I was like, okay. And I said, I keep hearing this word. And I said, I've never said this before. And I would not want to say it ever around a woman, but somebody called you this. She just loses it. And I'm like, okay, God, you're right. You know? And, and then she was like, that's what my mom called me my whole life. Um, and she, she too has um, given me permission to share this. And she was like, and my mom told me, I'm going to teach you how to mine gold. And you're, you're sitting on a gold mine and I want to teach you how to mine gold. And I was just like, ah, oh. I, you know, I, I had to break through my religious walls to, uh, to obey God to say that, you know, mm. and, and, uh, but it was like, man, we, we never would have gotten there. Standard questioning, you know, mm-hmm. but the Holy Spirit goes, we're going to cut through the chase and get right to the point. So what would you say? to uh, men and women um, about how do you get free? Hmm. How do you get free? Man. That's a good question. How I got free. I have never seen you pause that long. <laughs> I, I mean, it's a, cause the truth is I, if I was looking at somebody and talking to them about it, I would share how I got free, which is what I've done for the last few yeah. years. Shared how I got free. Yeah. At the end of the day, freedom is not something that's complete. I don't know for survivors that <sighs> I should sit here or any of you and try to say that freedom is a guarantee because <sighs> There are aspects of freedom that I have been able to have and experience that are unbelievable, greater than anything I could have hoped for. But there's aspects of bondage that don't manifest until I'm living in a life of that freedom. And it makes it very difficult because you, when you've been a slave your whole life, it is very uncomfortable mm. being free. It's very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. And it's much easier to run back to the fields of comfortability than it is to go ahead and and plow your way into the sea of the unknown. It's incredibly awkward out there. It's incredibly unnatural out there. I am walking around amidst a sea of people who have are are so blind and so deaf that they can't comprehend basic realities of how the world works, who can't understand what food is, what water is, what clothing is, what the truth is. It's, it's, it's a very disgustingly frustrating world out there when you are, are somebody who has access to it, when you have access to it to do with it as you would like, when you have known a structured environment for so long, freedom is very unusual. 
Freedom is very, very scary in that regard. And I think that was put into me at such a deep age that it's taken a long time and it still requires deliberate commitment to this, to this life. Like I have a family with four children, my wife and I raise them. We're with them constantly. It's very difficult for me to be around crying children, to be raising a family amidst trying to deprogram and trying to to find my own freedom mm. because there's all these little pitfalls along the way where you're like, I think I have cleansing and healing and restoration in some areas. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you're battling and dealing with an area of bondage, a brokenness that that requires time, that requires a lot of time. And when you when you have like I have twin babies right now, there's not a lot of time. I was up doing an interview till two in the morning yesterday. <laughs> and, and, and then I was up with my son. Wow. After that, until five in the morning, you know, like that, then I was doing an interview this morning, you know, but this is not like an unusual experience for parents. And I think this is like, like I'm, I'm trying to cheerlead people on to this like goal of freedom, which is awesome. And it's brutal. And I don't want to give them a false sense of like expectation about what freedom is or what integration is or restoration is. How do they get free? You absolutely have to commit yourself to the cause. At the end of the day, you must absolutely be committed to seeking freedom no matter the cost. You know, there's been a lot of bloodshed and a lot of violence in my life. But you know what? There hasn't been a lot of physical violence since I really committed myself to being free. I thought I was going to have to literally, like, I really thought I was going to have to fight my way out of that kingdom. I thought I would have to fight gory, bloody, like, rampage wrecking and ravaging through this familial line of mine in order to get out like i that's how i got into it you know i didn't get in without blood this was a bloody covenant that i got brought into early on so i knew it would require a bloody covenant to get out of and i assumed falsely that it would be my bloody covenant in order to get my way out of it that it would require more of my bloodshed it would require more of their bloodshed in order for me to go ahead and appease these these uh this imbalanced scales of justice that were always demanding more. And you know what? At the end of it, what I found is that I I needed I needed a bloody covenant. But that bloody covenant had already been done. That bloody that bloody Come covenant on. had already been worked. Like he had there Come there on. really was someone who loved us Thank you, Jesus. sincerely. Amen. Like loved us as that child in the pit. Like loved me. When I was fighting for my mm. life, when I was mm. tearing people apart, when I was being torn apart, when I was being shackled in shame, there's someone who learned obedience through suffering. That's the chief shepherd. Mm. Like a chief shepherd, the difference between a man who's the shepherd and a shepherd boy is the shepherd boy goes out because that's what his father tells him to do. A man who chooses to continue to be a shepherd lays his life down. He lays his life down. He puts pause on everything else that's going on. You think there's not a lot of responsibilities that fathers have? Like, I didn't, I didn't have a clue what a father really required, what it requires to be a father. You have to lay your life down. In order to, to like break this cycle, I'm trying to break a generational cycle of incest, a generational cycle of abuse and of trauma. And you know what? That's not easy. It's incredibly difficult. But I'm committed to that cause. I'm committed to providing for my children freedom of choice. I want them to be able to choose the path at the end of it when I've done everything I can to, to diligently impress the words of the covenant of truth upon them that they can go out and make their own choices in this life. But I want them to have freedom that I never experienced. I want them to never know what it's like to be in the cage. 
I want them to know what it's like to be somebody who was born to set captives free. <clears throat> and that required for me coming to a place of understanding all the different names, all the, not names, all the different titles to God and to Jesus, to, to Yeshua and to Yahuwah. Like understanding what is what does El Roy mean? Like, why is Hagar standing, mm. sitting there, dejected, cast out, terrified? And why does she call the one who provides for her, El Roy, the one who sees me? That, like, I, I had to systemically go from generation, Genesis mm. to Revelation, finding out who have people come to know him as. What are these? Those are messianic prophecies. Every other title that we see of our father is a prophecy about the identity. This is like clues on a treasure map to find the, the, the son of righteousness. And when we find these collective character attributes in a man, we'll know we found the son. Because you know what? So he, he was like the father. He only spoke what the father spoke to him. He was the embodiment of obedience. He was the embodiment of a protector. He was the embodiment of a servant, of a, of a man who sacrificed his life. And you know what? He laid that life down by living. He didn't just die for me. That was one of the things he did. He lived for me. He lived for me. He lived a life of, of warring against the sons of the serpent, the very same brotherhood of the snake that conspired to destroy and devour my life, conspired to destroy every male seed line for generations to try to kill that man. They wanted to kill him when he was in the loins of Abraham. They wanted to kill him when he was in the loins of, of, of every single patriarch and matriarch that came before him. There has always been a war against the children. And you know what? I needed to see somebody who fought for the children. I needed somebody who fought to deliver, to rescue, and to ransom. And that is what I found, that that, that bloody covenant of when he gave his life, that's literally the word Nathan, when he gave his life, as a ransom for many, he took captivity captive. He, he went into the bowels of the earth and he took the keys, the authority from death, an actual entity, an actual physical thing, creature. He took the keys from death. The devil, the dragon used to have those keys. Now he lost them and he literally led a mighty host of people to be raised from the dead. Like he conquered death. He conquered death, so I don't have to fight him anymore. Like, you can't fight death. That was the inevitable reality of what I learned through all this mind control was that you can't defeat death, so join him. That was the whole, like, play of the long game that they had for me. But you know what? No, there, there is one who beat death, and if we call upon Come him, on. he can destroy and disannul that covenant, that bloody covenant that I once had, that I no longer agree or consent I no longer agree to those oaths, those vows, those secrecy clauses. None of it. By no means. And you know what? He can write my name. He can blot out my name from that disgusting ledger, and he can put my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. And when he does that, boy, I'll tell you what, there's no covenant on this earth. There's no vow. There's no clause of secrecy or oath or covenant that you can make on this earth that can keep you from him. When he says he writes them on his hand, and he's like, none of you are going to snatch them out of my hands. He's like, I make a book of remembrance. And Mal like he, he, talks, he talks to one of his prophets, and he's like, listen, take up a book of remembrance for me. And I want you to write in there the names of everyone who talks about my name, who reveres my name. I want you to write about them, because I want a special book of remembrance about people who <laughs> revere me and talk talk about my name, my character. And you know what? 
that's ultimately those people are the ones that helped to wake me up to this. They were bold. They were courageous. They knew his name. They knew his character. They knew his attributes. They knew who he was, his identity, and they preached it. They taught it, but they lived it authentically. And that is what helped me to get free was seeing their witnesses, their testimonies, seeing the fruit of their lives. Because you know what? You can test whether or not somebody is a ravenous wolf inwardly by their fruits and you can find their fruits predominantly in their children. You can find them in the fruits of their life. And that, that fruit inspection has allowed me to evaluate whether somebody was a perverter of justice or somebody who was an executor of justice. And it has given me the ability to see freedom can be found, but it's going to be costly. And you know what? You have to commit to it. Absolutely. Powerful word. There's nothing like the blood of Jesus and, and, uh, yeah, trumps every other. One of the things I know that, that it's intentional in the occult realm is they want to make it impossible to receive God's love because of the shame and the guilt that is thrust upon you at an early age. And, um, but the blood of Jesus is powerful enough to break through that. Um, so thank you for that testimony. One of the things I'm wondering is, um, I, I, I see people that grew up going through what you went through. In church before, like y- your family was highly involved in the church. And then as you came out, you were looking for help to get out. Um, what would you say to churches about, because I, I, I know that in our many of our mainline churches, we've ministered to people that are coming out. Their families were involved in leadership at some of the highest, biggest name churches positions of influence in those places and they were they were steeped in darkness generational darkness but they were they had woven themselves into the fabric of churches then you've got people that are showing up in our churches because i believe that there is a coming out that's happening like uh, and they're looking for help and 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 a church as a whole is typically not equipped how to respond if if you start telling your story to most people in church, it's going to wig them out. Um, so I, I'm here. I'm, I got two questions coming. One is, how does the church respond and, and wake up to the reality that this is in our midst? And then how do we respond to those that are seeking freedom? How did, how did Peter respond when Satan entered Ananias and Sapphira and they came in the church? You know, how did he respond to wolves? He was a shepherd. Shocker. Kill him. Mm-hmm. That's what you do with it. He, he, he had what was called the fruits of the spirit, one of which is the discerning of spirits. And it is absolutely mm-hmm. critical that we cultivate, once again, the ability to discern between good and evil, right and wrong. This was the commandment. This is like what was required for the priests was to teach people between clean and unclean, right and wrong, good and evil. That's like fundamentally what should be the basic combat instruction course for every believer, from every pastor, from every pulpit, should be what is right and what is wrong. And you know what? The issue that we are dealing with fundamentally is a failure to guard the basic fundamentals of what is evil in our midst. And instead, we have a conspiracy of silence within most of our churches to cover up and conceal Mm. sexual immorality, sexual idolatry. A greediness for gain, which is idolatry. We, the, the, we have houses of idols in the vast majority of our churches, and 
judgment is always going to begin in the house of Yahuwah. It's always going to begin in those places where people say, mm -hmm. this is where the hand of God works from. Well, you know what? The enemy is going to come in and test you because it's not always, y'all. God sends the evil spirits most of the time. It's not like the devil is always roaming around and doing all the evil. When they wanted, like, when, when, our, when our father, you were asking about biblical references earlier to this, when, when King Ahab, which had been prophesied to be blotted out of existence, because, y'all, this is one of those radical, intelligent evil, like, like an abominator of truth and justice at the worst level, the husband of, Je of Jezebel, like, destroyer of the righteous, like, horrible persecutor of the people of God. When God wanted to destroy him, he held a council with, with his divine host, and he said— this is in the book of First Kings and Second Kings, by the way. For those that are like wanting some really good references to how did this play out, First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles have some incredible insight to what it looked like when radical oh, intelligent yeah. evil put on skin suits and began to contend against the people of God. When you want to find out what that looks like, you should read the testimonies of the kings because you know what? They've been there, done that lots of times. Hundreds and hundreds of years of history are written in there plainly. It's an accurate, reliable historical text. The Bible, I know, it's scary. Think about Come on. reliable yes. historical firsthand accounts are written in there to help you deal with this kind of evil taking place in your midst. The divine council is where the father holds counsel and he says, hey, how are we going to deal with King Ahab and fulfill the word that I sent to them? One spirit came forward and said, I will go and I will fill the mouths of the prophets with a lying spirit and I will lead them astray. That literally that word astray. Anytime you see that in the scriptures, you should be thinking satanic. To go astray literally is the difference between a goat and a sheep is the goats will wander and create goat trails all over the place. A sheep will follow its the voice of the leader. It will literally, they will line up. I've been a shepherd all over this country, and I've seen this take place. Goats need to be driven out of the kingdom. That's why he says, I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats. The goats want to get out of the fence and go their own way. The sheep want to follow the shepherd's voice. And you know what? When they went astray, he put the mouth, one spirit, by the way, infected four hundreds of prophets, hundreds of prophets, except for one, except for one. The word of Elohim came to one man who went, all these other prophets are prophesying, you're going to win in that war, in that battle, you're going to go, go have victory. They're like making all these horns. I mean, they're like really putting on the theatrical show about how they're going to win. And they're sincerely believing the spirit has come to them and given them a word. But you know what that spirit was sent on an assignment to lie to test them. And this is like why we have in Deuteronomy 13, these tests. Hey, if somebody comes and performs signs and wonders and miracles and dreams and prophetic stuff, and if they lead you from keeping these commandments, if they lead you astray from the word, ah, I've sent them to test you, you know? And so like there is an absolute time of understanding. There is a lot of program multiples who are sent on assignment to infiltrate churches to destroy them, to destroy them. Others are sent on Come assignment on. Come on. Test them. And yes. you, got, you have to understand that that inherently that keystone like like intimate nature of, of survivors is they are observers. They are keen observers, and they are going to test and evaluate all of the, the, the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual hierarchy of every church they ever go to. And they're going to evaluate and, and place a ranking structure to who is the most um, 
influential person there. And you know what? It's not, it's most often not the person on the front of the stage. There's generally always people who are high influencers because of how our society has structured a 501c3, a a tax charitable donation system incentivizes. It's very hard. It says a bribe blinds the eyes to justice. And you know what? It's very difficult as a position and as a minister to not see a check for $50,000 and a check for $5,000 and to not want to give preferential treatment like it says in the book of James like you come sit up here by me you sit down there you poor man it's it's very hard not to yep. do that i'm not trying to be derogatory towards ministers because i understand like like i don't profiteer off of my ministry i don't charge people for interviews i don't charge people for my book i have a match your own price for everything i've done i've given it away and i i petitioned the father in secret to make my needs to meet my needs and you know what he has he has taken care of us and sustained us but i'll tell you in ministry, he often will do that by taking you all the way down to a place of total nothing. He will, and he'll he'll take care of you and mm-hmm. sustain you in there. But he's mm-hmm. going to let you suffer poverty and hunger for a reason. He's going to teach you some good lessons. But it will help to yep. kill the idol of greediness yep. for gain or using the word as a way of making money, merchandising people. Like I have this right here, this little thing, all the time to remind me. The time Yeshua braided a weapon. Oh, you can't see it yet. Hold on. Let me do it. That. See that? I, I I don't have my glasses on, so I'm having a hard time. Okay. But just uh, John, yeah. John two fifteen through seventeen, and it says, "Zeal for your house uh-huh. will consume me." This is when our master made a weapon. This is like my favorite passage in the entire scriptures because Come I ask people, yeah. them. I'm like, "Tell me, tell me when the Messiah made a weapon." He's a weapon maker. He's like a weapon maker. And I always love to ask people, "When did he make a weapon?" Well. When, when yeah. he saw that people were merchandised, when, when the people of God were being merchandised, sold, trafficked, like Joseph style, you know, when they were profiteering off of people's pain and suffering and their need for the word, that stuff infuriates him. And you know what? That's when he says judges. That's when he sent judges to test him. And a lot of people, a lot of mind-controlled slaves are sent into congregations to destroy them because ultimately their fruit is rotten. Their fruit is rotten. And you know what? It's, they're going to find out, is there sexual immorality going on here in this place? Is there idolatry being taken place here? And if you're not, if you're not already as a, as a church or as a, as a minister, as a leader of that fellowship, if you're not wholly committed to driving idolatry out of your church, this is why at the end of 1 John, the last words he says, 1 John is like this powerhouse book to give you a way of fighting back against the horrible, intense atrocities John talked about in Revelation and First and Second John. Like, you got a lot of stuff you got to deal with. First John is your, like, war manual. It's like literally your battery of arms. How do we, how to use this weapon that he's given you? And he says, little children, keep yourself from idols. Those idols are what we set up in our hearts. Like it says in Ezekiel 14, the first place they generally get set up is in our hearts. And Yah literally says, I will answer you according to your idols. He will put the words of prophecy, fulfillment, miracles. He will answer you according to that which you set up in your heart as your idol. And so how churches can be effective in this is they have to purge idolatry from their midst. Paramount fundamentals is they have to first understand they need to fall on their faces and repent for areas where they have taken a bribe, where they have blinded their eyes to justice, where they have had false measures and scales, where they have given their time, their energy, their resources, and devotion, worship to somebody instead of the someone who saved them. And there's, there's a need for deep repentance that is always the door that delivers people from all of this is repentance, is falling on our faces, screaming and crying out and asking the one who sets us free from bondage 
to deliver us from our bondage, to weeping and repentance to those that we have victimized by stereotyping them and driving them out of our midst because we weren't willing to look at the grungy, dirty, disgusting people of our society, that we weren't gutter preaching, that we weren't going out and weighing into the fray and doing massive, continual street evangelistic. Like, we need major street evangelism. You know why the first century church was so effective? Because they went house to house and ate bread with one another. Close the doors of the church and go eat in everybody's house instead. I am telling you, it will help to shut down all of the infiltration into the children's ministry, why your children are being sodomized and raped in your churches, because that's where the predators want to go. They want to go to where the counselors are. They want to go to where the ministers are. They want to go and find out where are the children, because they're ultimately seeking ways to steal, kill, and devour and destroy the competition. They're enemies. They're being good ta tacticians in trying to destroy their enemy. You need to understand a warrior's mindset and and. Fight back against it. And if that means if your church is infiltrated, shut the doors. Shut the doors. Purge the house. There's a reason they would close the temple doors when idolatry had broken out, when people had gum begun to come into the house and establish cult prostitution. And I'm not talking about like older men and women. I'm not talking about consenting adults. When you read male cult prostitutes in the Bible, they're talking about boys. They're talking about little children who are made to do horrible sexual acts. That's male cult prostitutes. The black-robed priests that Josiah drove out of there are the same black-robed priests of, of like the Jesuits and the Catholics who are all about male sodomy. They're all about this stuff, y'all. And it's been going on and infecting our churches forever. And you know what? You have to close the doors and purge it out, cleanse it out. And it may take months. It may take years. You may never open them again. But you know what? By doing that, you can go to where you're needed most, which is actively engaged in each other's lives. We need each other. We need community. We don't need churches. We are the church. Like, we are the church. We don't need a building in order to, to, to facilitate that. He gave us this beautiful vineyard known as the earth to go out and spread out on and go, and go to the nations and preach the gospel of this good news to every creature. They need our witnesses. We need to stand in rivers and preach the word. Read the word. We need to be standing in our parks and in the corners of our alleys and our gutters and outside of strip clubs and strip malls and invading our society, invading the culture and infecting them with the inoculant to fear, which is truth about their purpose and about their calling. That's how we can turn that ship around. How can churches respond when someone uh, like yourself is reaching out? Hey, I want, I want freedom. I want help. Mm. What do we uh, need to know? You need to know whether or not you can, you can actually minister to that person first and foremost. Because if you're, if Be you able to have admit that you can't, yeah, a lot yeah. of a lot of you can't. I'm yeah. just going to answer that question first and foremost. A lot of you can't. A lot of you are too ignorant and too beguiled in uh, in doctrinal disputes of worthless arguments to even have spent the time and the energy that's required <laughs> to know, to know uh, what this world is that these people are coming from. Can you like, beat around the bush a little bit more? <laughs> people, 
People need to know whether or not you can be trusted. And if they're coming to you and they're asking for help, first of all, that's a huge indicator that they already trust you to some extent. And you need to be able to discern whether or not they are sent there on a mission of evil or they're sent there on a mission of good. And those are, those are important because what you can have is somebody that comes in and just absolutely eats all of your time, your energy, and your resources, and they only stay broken continually. That I know that's something you're nodding your head because you've experienced this for certainly. Everybody who tries to take in these people and help them, some of them are only sent there to cause chaos and confusion and destroy what's actually taking place there. And so this is where a lot of churches stop it. They're like, heck no, we're not touching that again. That was horrible. That was awful, and we weren't prepared for it. And you know what? That's why I think you, you have to be ready to – if you don't have people that are already very – very gifted as as ministers, as counselors, as discerners in that regard that understand these concepts, even if it's not all the way, you really shouldn't accept it in that sense. If you don't, if you're not willing to absolutely go the distance to that and engage in it and be willing to devote a significant amount of resources to helping people like this, listen, don't, don't off, don't act like you're somebody who's actually part of the great physician's army and say that you're, you're willing to, but you're not because uh, it's, it's really, really vulnerable position for a survivor to come forward or a, a, a victim to come forward and try to start that process of healing only to get completely cast out when they, when they get really messy. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of ignorance, you know, and they just, I, it sucks. It sucks that the, that whole, that collectively the church is mostly ignorant. That's really lame, but that's by design. I understand. I have compassion that that was, that was bred into them. They didn't start that way. Church 200 years ago, when I read their books, man, these people, these people were driving out oath keeping societies vigorously. They almost blotted them out. People like Charles Finney. There was massive reformations. And, oh, his was amazing. Yes. That almost, that almost purged this disgusting matter from our books. But a lot of you, the reason you can't see this stuff is because you rolled up the pant leg and blinded your eye and swore to cut out the tongue of anybody else that spoke the oaths. A lot of you are the oath keepers that are absolutely indoctrinated people with deception and doctrines of demons. So, you know what? Shocker, a bunch of mm -hmm. idolaters to begin with, and you're willing to swear the oath. <laughs> to cover up your brother's crimes and you're not going to take in survivors you're going to hand them off to other perpetrators and so there's a whole lot of issues that that need to take place which is why i'm an advocate of hey go house to house get to know somebody that way it's it's really effective get to know another minister and be able to to find out whether or not they can be trusted with that before you just totally commit yourself to seeking help and deliverance from them so many survivors i've heard when they started to reach out found an organization, a housing situation, whatever, only to find themselves in in a revolving door, in in someone who was actually on the on the outside, a child of light, but they were actually part of the system, and they got pulled right back in when they were reaching out for help. Did you experience that at all? Mm. I I haven't experienced that directly. I, Praise I, God. I've heard from people who have experienced that a lot, but that's not been something that like I personally have Praise experience God. with. Awesome. Awesome. Hmm. Is there anything else on your mind and heart that you were like, this is what's burning in me that I want to share? Um, I mean, at the end of the day, it's not often I get to talk to like, people who are still actively engaging in the church. And I think there's a, there's a level, like I stopped listening to anything else when I was down in Florida, right? I don't know. Even it was actually about a year before I met you. I was down in Southern Florida uh, mm -hmm. outside of Fort Myers working as on a volunteering on a farm. Um, 
and I was working in these greenhouses pruning tomato vines by the thousands and thousands. And I stopped listening to podcasts. I stopped listening to, to music. I stopped listening to anything. And I just started reading my Bible. And I was like, I am going to devote myself to no outside influences. Like I'm in this really bizarre situation in my life where I don't have to be participating in a regular life. And I was like, I just want to go to the word and I want to get comfortable with the quiet. And I want to get comfortable with having the father speak to me how he sees fit and when he sees fit instead of, I, I used audio content to drown out a lot of my life. Uh, you know, I, it's not that it was worthless things I was learning or listening to, but a lot of it was distractionary based. It was an escape based ideology. I was running from my mm. reality. Like I had a little baby that was six months old then, and I really don't like this phase. I don't, I don't, it's very torturous and painful to have babies crying. It was, it is very painful to be around that. And even I'm seven, eight, I'm eight years into this like process of seeking healing and restoration. It's still excruciating for me. I don't, it is a thorn in my flesh that, the, that I've just not had full deliverance from in that regard. It's painful for any parent to hear their child cry, but there is a version of it for people that have experienced this that is, that is so other overwhelming, but I would, I would escape through, through, through stuff, listening to stuff and drowning it out all the time. And, and I felt like the father just was like, stop stop just go back to my word and let nothing else and that was for months i just fasted everything else and it was incredible as it began to cultivate this 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 hunger for the word in me it wasn't easy in the beginning it was really difficult and i was really emotional really i was really grumpy but i just like anybody who goes through like physical nutrient fasting it starved my flesh it starved my hunger for for something to scratch my ears for something to to, to titillate mm. my 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 conscience to give me a emotional response to give me a high i mean i was like i'm substance free and all this other stuff but but information was the drug that i was going to this like quest for knowledge in another way was my escape and you know what as i as i turned from that and i began to go back to his word he opened it up to me in such a powerful and profound way and if I could share with anyone, the biggest thing that came during the course of that was a need for me to repent for this, this bitterness that I had for the church, this bitterness that I had for the ways that they had failed, mm -hmm. the way that they had failed. Because at the mm -hmm. time, I didn't, I didn't want to talk to anybody involved in churchianity at all. I didn't even want to speak to them. I couldn't even, mm -hmm. I couldn't even walk into the room because you got to understand, when I went wow. out seeking help in counseling services, I had already come down a road for many months of my own self-healing, of my own self-deliverance. Like, I've been engaged in spiritual warfare since I was born, y'all. I've been dealing with casting out devils and demons and stuff for a long time. So by the time I got to where I was like, I really need somebody else to, to go through this with. Because my stories and stuff I needed to tell my wife were so, were so graphic. It was like it was going to defile her. It was getting to a state where I was like, it's just going to defile her, and I need someone to talk to. Well, this church that I went to, they, they, they literally— they were a very spirit-filled church, and they had a. The reason I went there was because they had an incredibly active homeless ministry. They were feeding so many people. That was like a core tenet of their ministry, was that they had a major intimate outreach program for the homeless and for victims. Okay, they didn't call and they, there was nowhere advertised, like you said, Richard. He never advertised that they help SRA people. They never put any of that out there. However, because they were involved in gutter preaching, they understood that a lot of these people come from backgrounds like mine. 
and they were dealing with a lot. Denver, Colorado is the number two human trafficking city in the United States. Well, at, at different times it varies, but Atlanta, Georgia generally is another one. Tampa, like you're, where you're at, yeah. major hubs for this international cities where human trafficking is just the religion. I mean, it's unbelievable how much. So if you go out and start trying to get involved in street ministry, you're going to get saturated with victims of human trafficking and child exploitation. And that church, though, they offered to me, like I reached out, I was like, I need some counseling services. And they're like, okay, kind of for what? And I explained to them a little bit about ritualistic abuse. And they connected me with a counselor who had worked with 35 other victims of, of uh, ritualistic abuse, all of which were women, all of which up until that point were women. And he was, I was the first male he ever took on. And that church financed for me to get the counseling services. They were incredible. They understood wow. my situation where I was at and they, they paid for wow. me to go there. They paid for me to go there and have those services. But what happened is wow. I, my father, because I, I got into this war with my family when I refused to give them Naomi. Like as soon as, as soon as I wasn't going to sign her over in the trust the, in like the, the legal guardianship over to the family to do what they wanted with her a few weeks every year. As soon as that happened and I started coming out and talking to my sisters and man, it was World War Three for them. They tried to kill us. They tried to kill my wife. They came after us horrifically. Then they went after character assassinating all my former employers, all my former pastors, every church I'd ever volunteered in. Like I've been a part of ministries all over the place. They went after every relation I ever had to try to character assassinate me and destroy me. And then they finally found me again at this church. They were adamantly, my, my dad would drive hours to go up and show up at this church to try to get access to me, get access to my daughter and, and completely take me back in. Right. This church was trained enough to not turn me over to him. It was amazing. Wow. Like, it was the first time I ever had somewhere that protected wow. me from the pervert. Like it was the first time I ever had a church mm. that was like, no, my dad came with pastors. Like you got to understand, like my, my brother-in-law has his masters in, from a seminary in apologetics. Like these are, these are serious, devoted, mm. very sharp, very mm. connected Christians. Okay. So they mm. know how to navigate pastors. They know how to manipulate them. Let me just put it that way. They know how to manipulate Christians like big time inside the mm. churchianity scene. And they, my dad came with a collective armory of people to try to come against me and get me back. And you know what? They had 0% of that nonsense. They were incredibly discerning about what he was there to do. And I mean, he started harassing them with letters and texts and phone calls. I mean, he launched an onslaught campaign, but they resisted that. And they insulated me and protected me and ensured the continuity of my payment because his big thing he was trying to get was that payment. Praise God. He didn't want me to have the counseling services anymore. That was his main targeted goal was to try to get access to the counselor so he could get records and start to, to manipulate. Anyways, that church defended me. And it was beautiful. And it was such a, a good reminder. And, and I think over the course of that time during that fasting, he helped to bring that to my remembrance. That you know what? You, yes, a lot of the churches didn't defend me. A lot of them actually enacted the very same abuse and cover up that 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 allowed this to propagate. But you know what? There there's seven thousand who have not bowed the knees to Baal. Like Elijah got mm. experienced that moment yes. when the father's like, Stop whining. Stop it. You're not alone. You're <sighs> not the only one who suffered. Get over it. You got a job to do. Get back to work. And you know what? We got to go where the labor is required. And if that's in the church, we go to the church. And you know what? We repent to them for harboring bitterness and anger and resentment towards them for their failures to look after us. And you know what? We need to also likewise extend loving forgiveness and compassion and kindness towards them to understand that, that they are beguiled. In many ways, they're beguiled. They're being worked over by master manipulators. But you know what? There's still some incredible warriors in there. And they're absolutely devoted to this. And they're all over the place. There's so many ministries 
that get that I, I'm getting in contact with now that have been weighing down into this fray, that have been fighting for the lost, that have been trying to set captives free deliberately, intentionally for decades, for generations. Mm-hmm. They just generally don't have the best publicity. They don't have the best marketing. They don't have the best branding. They don't have the they're not they're not washing enough money through their laundering of their five hundred one C three in order to be on the mm-hmm. radar for most of us. But you know what? They're not compromised, and that's so beautiful. And so, if anything, I could say is. Thank you to those of you who have been in ministry, who have been laboring for the kingdom, who have not perverted justice for the sake of the bribes that have come in. Continue to please educate yourself. Y'all, War of the Ages, you're asking for another resource. This is a really good one by Gregory R. Reed. Dr. Gregory Reed has this book called War of the Ages, which deals with understanding the the spiritual warfare from the scriptures like how do we understand and navigate this like why does the king of moab when he's losing a battle against all the people of israel the army of israel surrounds him he tries to send out his special forces to break three 800 mighty men and they can't and so he goes and grabs his firstborn son and he brings his firstborn son in front of the sight of all the people upon that wall and he offers him up as a as a slaughter offering as he sacrifices his son and when that blood spills this great wrath it says breaks forth that's an unleashing of the dark chosen ones these ancient ancient powers to come upon and possess his soldiers and they break out and drive Israel back even though Israel had the word wow. to go they were supercharged from the demonic realm, from the spiritual realm, to completely destroy the righteous people. And you know what? That's the power of sacrifice. That's the power of sacrifice. And if, you, if you're derelict of understanding these things, you're, you're incompetent of being able to contend against it because you're going to have people who will come into your church. They're going to get access through grooming to you, your family, your church, keys. They're going to start working and volunteering, and they're going to come in there, and they're going to perform sacrifices in your church. They're going to perform sacrifices in your yard, in your back. They're, gonna, they're going to do this. You must understand, this is how the enemy fights. That if you're ignorant of it, it says, do not be ignorant of the schemes of the devil. You're forbidden from being ignorant of the schemes of the devil. It said, for this reason, the son of Elohim was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. So like that needs to be a paramount driving force of what we are about. Another, this is another incredibly good scholarly breakdown and analysis of what these people believe, why they believe it, and where they come from. This is the Genesis 6 Conspiracy by Gary Wayne. Gary Wayne is a historian of, of, of a very academic styling. And so his book is, for those of you that want lots of very precise, clearly articulated understanding of what these people, these ancient other brotherhoods and sisterhoods, societies, what they believe, why they believe it, where does it come from, what are their doctrines, what what is their resume look like? This is a really fantastic book for those of you that are looking for one. And then these are... Uh, my, Thank my, you for these resources because this, yes, this is one of the things when when you were teaching on speaking on some of this stuff, I'm going, what are his resources? Because uh, like it was. It was incredibly helpful. So thank you for sharing these on our podcast. Yeah. Go ahead. The, the uh, Johnny Cerucci is one of the best authors out there as well who deals with a lot of the origins of this in particularity. Like what what are these bloodline families and what are these priests all about? And and this is called the Illuminati on Mass. This was the first book that he wrote. Everything you need to know about the New World Order and how we beat it in dealing with where do these things come from? Why do these people do what they do? And how do people get access to power? His uh. This is this is his a newer one that he did, which is called The Eaters of Children, How Access to Power is Granted Through the Rape, Torture, and Ritualistic Slaughter of Children. This is absolutely one of the best books I have ever oh, 
It's horribly painful to read. I'll just say that. It's oh, yeah. it's it is it's like it's like somebody who took the time to write and these these he builds this this is he, this is a historical text that he goes through from people's documentation from you know early church history all the way back to the beginning of the scriptures. Where do these people come from? Why do these people worship Moloch? Why did they have the tabernacle of, Mo- of Moloch was with the tabernacle of the Most High in the wilderness, y'all? They were sacrificing and burning babies alive when they were in the wilderness after they got delivered out of Egypt. Y'all, this is what Stephen's talking about in the book of Acts when he's given his great dissertation on the history of God's people. There's always people that, that practice infanticide among us. And how do you deal with them? This is a really good breakdown of that. Johnny Cerucci is one of my favorite authors and speakers who deals with that as well. So. Those are, I just wanted to make sure to hit some resources are, for you. Are, are you familiar at all with Joachim um, Hagopian and his uh, Pedophile Empire series? No. I, I don't know that I'm getting the titles perfect. Okay. I just I was wondering because he, he traces not just U.S. but throughout the U.S. all of the um, the different the, – the, like the Catholic – um, pedophilia and all of that's oh, yeah. connection back to the new world order um, stuff. And, and I mean, exposing it, he's like a research or he's not, doesn't come at it necessarily from a biblical perspective. So I'm looking forward to those resources. I'm going to, I'm going to hook up with those. So, all right. You know what? I want to, um, I, I feel like we could go on and on and, and I would love to have you on again soon but um i, I want to i really felt led almost to stop earlier and pray for you and your family um that that i i sense the cycles already are broken and so i want to pray for you but i also want you to pray us out so i want to pray first and then i want to let you just pray us out but if you don't mind i would love to just pray the release of generational blessings would be restored uh, because the the blessings flow to a thousand generations and your generation goes all the way back to um, to God himself. Because in one of the genealogies, I think it's in Matthew, it says, Adam, son of God, when it traces the lineage back, mm-hmm. it traces it back to God. And, and, and that, that the, the, Praise God, the, the curses flow to the third and fourth generation. In one scripture, it talks about ten, ten generations, um, and, and, and that's the limiting power of darkness. Um, but, but God's power is greater. So I just, I really felt led just to, um, I, I feel like your children already are receiving a blessing. Uh, and I, and I just want to pray that that would be, um, accentuated increase and that they would become a powerful army against the kingdom of darkness. And then, then, uh, let you pray us out. Is that all right? Absolutely. All right. Lord, I just thank you for Nathan, for the boldness of his faith, his love for your word, um, the anointing that is on him for such a time as this. I thank you, Lord, for the freedom that he has, experienced so far and i pray god for an acceleration of that 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 lord that that god the sonship and the freedom is going to be uh quickly overtaking all of the slavery that he endured god um and i pray lord that that would open up just the most 
incredibly rich generational blessing and flow to raise up mighty warriors through his sons and daughters and his grandchildren. Lord, that is going to impact this nation, this generation, and uh, generations to come for your kingdom and for your glory and for your honor. We bless you, Father. Father Yahuwah, we just are, we're so thankful for the beautiful people that are waging in, Father, and and willing to fight against this radical evil. Father, we just pray for an absolute release of resources, Father, from the heavenly realms, from the physical realms, Father, to be able to equip Mm -hmm. us and empower us to be able to overcome this great darkness that is waging its war against us. Father, you said the light has pierced the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it. So I pray that you would drive confusion into the enemy's camp. I pray that you would dismantle their transportation methods, their communication methods, Father. I pray that you would cause blindness to come upon them, Father, and that you would allow them to be wearied, (laughs) Father, from seeking out the doors of the righteous. I pray that instead you would provide an escape, a way out for us, Father. I pray that you would relieve us, Father, from the trials and the temptations that have been sent amidst us, Father, to test us. But we pray, Father, that you would help us to pass the test, that you would help us to overcome, that you would help us to become overcomers by the blood of the Lamb. We pray that you would please deliver unto us the powerful precepts, those marvelous instructions, those loving instructions that you gave to Moses. Help us to understand the Torah. Help us to understand the prophets. Help us to understand the writings. Help us to understand the gospel and the incredible epistles, Father, and the revelatory works of prophecy, Father. We pray that you would please open our eyes to see the wonders that are hidden in your word. We thank you, Father. We rejoice at your word like one who finds great treasure. So we rejoice with you for helping to deliver unto us and entrust unto us these precious oracles that were delivered by your powerful people, Father. Thank you for the faithful witnesses of the fathers and the mothers of our faith, the ones who laid their lives down, who gave up their dreams, their hopes, their callings, their inheritances, who went and looked for a city and maker who is Elohim. I pray, Father, that you would give us once again a boldness and a courage and a zealousness to not compromise, Father, to no longer put on a cloak yes, of Lord. violence, to no longer yes, compromise, Lord. Father, through sedition, corruption, and deceit. I pray, Father, that you would give us mouths that speak the truth, that, that the Torah of your truth would be in our lips, like you said in, the, in, your, in your writings, Father. Help us to know the clean from the unclean, Father. Help us to know the fruits of the wicked, Father. Help us to know even more intimately the fruits of your spirit. Please give us love and give us truth in equal measure, Father, so that we can wage this war with that beautiful, sharp, two-edged sword to pierce through the soul and the and the, and the spirit, Father, to cut through the bone and the joints, Father, and to discern the thoughts and the intentions of the hearts of man. Please give us the fruits of discerning spirits, Father, so we can know and evaluate who our adversaries are and who our allies are, Father. I pray that there would be a radical exposition of all that they have done in secret, Father, that it would come brought to the light. I pray that everything they've done in secret would come to the light. You said it will come to pass, and I pray that you would bring it to pass this very day, this hour, Father, in our life and in front of this generation, Father, that no more exploitation would take place, Father. I pray you would do whatever it's required to stop those who will not turn from it. Father, you know whether they will repent or whether they won't. And so we pray, Father, mercy for those that will turn, and we pray for utter destruction and the annihilation of those who will not. I pray that you would please take those those storehouses of, of, of 
peace that you have promised to those who trust you. And may you pour them upon us and richly clothe mm-hmm. us with power from on high, with the dynamite explosive power from on high to contend with the kingdom of darkness and to drive out of our midst, Father, the ways of the wicked. And may we instead embrace mm-hmm. the wonderful path of truth and of peace. In your great and awesome name, mm-hmm. we petition you and call upon you to answer us quickly. Come, Yeshua, come and ransom us. In your mighty name we pray. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you, Nathan. To everyone who watches this, get Nathan's book, Snatched from the Flames, correct? Yes. All right, we'll put a link to it in in our description and in the comment section. And um, yeah, phenomenal book, incredible story. Um, And you can find a lot of material a lot of stuff, a lot of interviews um, on uh, that that he's produced, and uh, you have a YouTube channel, Nathan Reynolds, correct? Right. Yeah. YouTube.com, Nathan Reynolds. I also have a yeah. Rumble at the Linden Railroad as well. Awesome. I I actually now own a fair amount of linen. Uh, I like <laughs> dealing with silk more. And yeah. uh, since you were here, we have a we have a we have a grain mill, and uh, I grind wheat on a pretty regular basis. So um, yeah, uh, I I I have followed all of that kind of stuff as well. And um, thank you for your influence. And and it, what's interesting is when somebody pulls something that's there, been there in your Bible for a long time out, and which is something I do on a regular basis. And I'm like, it's rare that I find someone that's, wait, I never saw that before, you know. Yeah. And uh, and so I I studied linen, I studied different stuff like that, and fascinating. So. Thanks again for being on the show. Blessings to you. And I want to encourage our listeners to like, subscribe, support Nathan. Um, get on his website. Give. Give generously. Bless them. And, uh, yeah. Any last words, thoughts, Nathan? Oh, so thank, thank you for fighting the good fight. Keep it up. Awesome. All right. Love you, man. Take Talk care. You Bye-bye.